Sam Savage, thank you very much indeed for talking to Judge Business School podcast series today. We're sitting here at the Judge Business School with your book in front of us, The Floor of Averages. Um, What's wrong with an average? Well, here's a simple example. Suppose on average you're on time. You know, two appointments, 50-50 chance you're early, 50-50 chance you're late. Suppose your spouse or significant other is often is also on time, on average, right? 50-50 chance, they're early, they're late. When you go out somewhere together, on average, you're late. It doesn't seem possible, does it? But you see, the thing here is, the only way you can be on time is if both of you are on time. This is like flipping two heads. Either of you is on time like flipping one head on a coin. But as soon as you both go together, it's like flipping two heads. Now, this doesn't seem like a big deal. But suppose you're orchestrating a huge software project that has hundreds and hundreds of tasks. You know, each one averages so long. And uh, if you take a very simple case, look, let's just imagine you have 10 tasks, and they're all in parallel. Some person has to get the legal work done. Someone has to get the website set up. Some guy has to do the content. 10 tasks, each of which takes, on average, we think, three weeks. Well, the boss asks when the website will be done, and you say, I don't know, boss. I don't know how long it will take to do the legal work or the content. The boss says, correct me if I'm wrong, give me a number. What are we paying you for? And then you say to the boss, well, boss, if it's an average you want, um, I mean, we can give you that. I I mean, I can't give you an exact number, but an average, well, we ought to be done in three weeks on average. Well, not exactly. It's now like flipping ten heads in a row. And so you have one chance in a thousand of finishing in three weeks, and yet we still say, gee, on average we'll be done in three weeks. So um, there are tremendous problems, and uh, I can discuss more now. I can just go on for... Well, it seems to me what you're saying is the floor of averages has tremendous application to business models and project planning at all levels of business. Well, that was just project planning. Let's take something else. Uh, You're ordering a new toy for the Christmas season, and you order it from China. Of course, you're uncertain about the demand for the toy. But we can forecast pretty well today, and, you know, people say, hmm, we think we'll sell 100,000 units of this thing. Um, And, well, not exactly. I mean, you know, plus or minus, say, 30,000 units, maybe down from 70,000 up to 130,000. Our best guess is we'll, we'll, we'll sell 100,000. So let's order 100,000 from China, which we do way in advance for the Christmas season. And um, when we sell one of these things, we make 10 pounds. Well, let's see. 100,000 times 10 pounds looks like we'll make, on average, we'll make a million pounds. No, you won't. If demand is less than 100,000, you're not going to make your million pounds. What if it's greater? You're screwed. You only ordered 100,000 units. So the flaw of averages hits you there again. What you say seems to be so intuitive, so packed with common sense and logic. Why have we got the risk management models so wrong for so long then? Because basically you're saying think again. Yes. So um, this may be a little abstract, but let me take you back to... 13th century Italy. Fibonacci, as in the Fibonacci sequence, 
arrives from North Africa, where he's been studying math while his dad was a businessman. And what did he bring Western culture? Absolutely nothing. Nada. Zilch. Zero. Fibonacci brought zero to Italy, along with the rest of the Arabic numerals, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. Now, that doesn't seem like much. But what were they using before they had those? They were using Roman numerals, and you can't do arithmetic with Roman numerals. So, sure, you had a bunch of smart people there. I mean, the center of culture, but they had a lousy number system, and it prevented them from doing calculations. Now, now, so that you're talking about mathematical falsehoods now, in a way. But, but, but what are the practical applications of your book in, in terms of actually exposing these mathematical falsehoods? Well, so I've sort of jumped to the end. And that is that working with uh, some big companies like Oracle and SAS, some smaller companies like Frontline Systems, um, we've developed a new algebra for risk. We've actually come up with a new computer type that does for uncertainties what Arabic numerals did for numbers. And um, it's terribly exciting. It, th- th- this data type could not have worked without very powerful computers, um, but it allows you to add risks up in a completely new way. And uh, perhaps even before this interview is done, my colleague Stefan here at Cambridge will be back with the copy of Risk Professional magazine that discusses uh, the, the notion of a consolidated risk statement. So we've now gone from some very, very simple-minded examples of why things are always late, you know, why things are always below budget, you know. Um, uh, well, well, in the U.S., we would, we would call that below projection, right? Uh, um, but uh, now we've suddenly jumped sort of to the cutting edge to say, you know, there are new techniques around now that give us a, a completely different look at uncertainty and a way to consolidate uncertainties into consolidated risk statements as if they were consolidated financial statements. This is difficult to, uh, uh, to view on the radio, very frankly, or the podcast. Um, but there, there are places where you can go play with this stuff. Um, I'm the chairman of, uh, of probabilitymanagement.org. That's two words, probabilitymanagement.org. And uh, there are uh, Excel models there that can uh, run you through this stuff and show how it works. So, so do you think you talked about Stefan at Stefan Schultz at Judge Business School, and, and you know who who is an expert in, in the risk management modelling uh, types you describe? But, but how exciting is this? You said your work was exciting. I know it took you nine years of thought to produce the floor of averages. But do you think we're at a seminal moment in, in risk management modelling? Oh, I, I think we are uh, for, for for a number of reasons. Um, number one the current risk models just flew the world economy into the side of a cliff. That means that people are receptive. Number two, Stefan and I have been working for for some years on this new approach um, uh, that really does uh, promise a paradigm shift. Um, let, Let me go back to the book for a second. The reason I wrote it was that I realized people did not understand these things intuitively at all. Let me give you a much more sobering example of the flaw of averages. 
Consider a drunk wandering back and forth on a busy highway. His average position is the center line. He's going right down the white line. Well, now, if you wanted to predict the state of the drunk on his average position, you would say he's alive. But obviously, on average, he's dead. So I was aware that people did not understand this stuff. I, I, the only way you find out is to go out and do lectures, and public lectures, lots of them, and you discover that people don't understand this stuff. Um, it took me a long time of teaching this before I came up with the title, The Flaw of Averages. And when I did in 1999, I rushed out and wrote a book contract with John Wiley. Now, as I started to write, I discovered that the flaw of averages simply ensures that everything is behind schedule, beyond budget, and below projection. There was no happy ending. You know, this is not a feel-good book. This is a feel-bad book, and no one buys them. And I realized it was a, wonder a wonderful title very catchy, and that was probably the one thing I had done, was come up with a clever title. So I wrote a, like a placeholder article in the San Jose Mercury in, in 2000 uh, called The Flaw of Averages. And uh, when it was published, oh, I, took, I reserved flawofaverages.com, you know, I, and when, it, when this article was published, there was this magnificent cartoon by Jeff Danziger on the cover of a statistician drowning in a river that is on average three feet deep. Uh, you can find it on the web. If you Google Flaw of Averages, you'll find this article that I wrote in 2000. Now, I figured I'd, I'd never finish the book. But then, starting in 2005, actually here at Cambridge, um, um, I, I, I developed a course for Shell Oil executives uh, with Stefan Schultes and with a guy who, who was then at Shell, Daniel Zweidler, uh, who is now at Merck and Company in the U.S. And we realized that, that there were ways to solve this problem. And I will give you an analogy in a second. But um, uh, we, we realized... So there is a cure. That, that it, there is, well, at that time, at that time, we felt there is potentially a cure. And we started working towards it. And then there were a couple of major technological breakthroughs, one of them in computation speed and one in storing data that said, yes, there really is a cure. And at that point, I madly finished the book because now the book had a happy ending. Okay? Now, let me give you a quick analogy uh, of, of the whole deal going on here. Um, simulation is a method of studying uncertainty. And the, the basic notion is you have a business plan, ram a bunch of random stuff through the business plan. You're worried about how many toys to, you're going to sell imported from China? Take a spreadsheet model, and instead of sticking a number in, oh, we'll sell 100,000 toys, stick 1,000 numbers in that range randomly for thir from 30,000 to 130,000, or from 70,000 to 130,000, or whatever you think is a rough range. As you do that, and it's done automatically, and it's called Monte Carlo simulation. As you do that, um, it illuminates the uncertainty. It doesn't make it go away. It illuminates it like a light bulb. So... In a very broad sense, simulation is to uncertainty as the light bulb is to darkness. And now, imagine Edison walking down the streets of New York in 1880 trying to sell light bulbs, and he can't sell a one. Why? People don't have electricity, for God's sakes. Okay, so he built a power plant. Well, it turns out that if 
simulation is to uncertainty as light bulbs are to darkness, then probability distributions are to simulation as electricity is to light bulbs. And what probability management is really about is creating a power grid for probability distributions. Yeah. So, so really what you're saying is you haven't just thought of the problem, you haven't just worked through the problem in the nine years of, of authorship of the floor of, of averages, you've got a solution for business too, and that solution is available now. It, absolutely. How quickly will it be adopted? No one knows. But it's available and it's available cheap. And um, th there are two software packages. Well, so, so let's, let's, let's now talk about the, the light bulb, okay? And the electricity. And one other facet of this. So that, I, I mean, it's so hard to talk about stuff even to other mathematicians about this, but, but we all know what light bulbs are, okay? So, so here, let me go through some of the breakthroughs. The first breakthrough was something I call interactive simulation. And uh, there's a product called Risk Solver from Frontline Systems that was the first to really bring this to market. Here's the deal. If I showed you the differential equations of motion of a bicycle, you would have no idea what you're looking at. The fact is, you have to learn to ride a bicycle interactively. You don't learn to ride a bicycle through the seat of the intellect. You learn to ride a bicycle through the seat of the pants. And the interactive handlebars and all this stuff connect the seat of the intellect to the seat of the pants. Let me point out that even bears have been taught to ride bicycles. That means they are solving those differential equations that look so ugly, but they're doing it through the seat of their bare butts. All right. So um, traditional Monte Carlo simulation, which has been around since the... Uh, since the Manhattan Project involves setting up computer, computer programming, program, then running it, chug, 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 and then reading some reports. Okay? So maybe some of your listeners are old enough to remember the bicycles with the command line interface. You would type in lean left, and then you'd hit the enter key, and then you'd hit a fire plug. That's why today's bicycles all have these cool interactive handlebars. It's the only way you can ride a bicycle. Now, you have to imagine simulation in which before your finger leaves the enter key of the computer, 1,000 numbers have already been run through the computer. So I go back to importing the toys from China. What if we import 80,000? And as soon as I say 80,000, enter, a thousand trials have been run through. It says your average profit will be this. What if I import 90,000? Boom, your average profit is this. And after I make any entry into the spreadsheet, a thousand numbers are fired through that thing before my finger leaves the enter key. So in our big analogy of light bulbs and electricity and so on, interactive simulation is a new light bulb. Very, very exciting. If we are at this seminal moment, and... and you spoke of the recession, the global meltdown, when people began to question the risk uh, management modelling techniques they had so often employed and that seemingly let them down. Do you think that, that perhaps in a year's time, two years' time, we will have adopters of your new techniques and, and that we will 
in a way live in a safer business environment as a result? Um, it can't hurt. It can't hurt. Here is, here is what, here's what our approach brings. Aside from this interactivity, which is great, okay, it brings something that's hard to sell, additivity. What the heck is additivity? Well, this is where the electricity comes in. So the electricity of the probability distributions. And this new data type is called the distribution string, or DIST for short, D-I-S-T. And what the distribution string allows is for probabilities to be consolidated across an industry. So you could imagine a bunch of banks that all have assets depending on housing prices. Now, they could all simulate uncertain housing prices, and each bank could say, oh, I have so much risk due to housing prices. But that completely misses the fact that all the banks are going to go over together like dominoes under a certain case, all right? So if, if, if you think of... Uh, so suppose housing prices could go up or down with a 50-50 chance. Again, let's go back to modeling with a coin toss. I could have 100 banks sitting there tossing a coin saying, gee, what's going to happen to my bank as housing prices go up and down? Our approach would be very different. A central organization would send out to the banks prepackaged 100 coin tosses. Right? Or make it 1,000 coin tosses. It looks like this. Head, head, tail, head, tail, tail, head, tail, tail, head, tail. I won't bother going on for the thousand, but they'd be stored. They would be stored, by the way, in the single cell of a spreadsheet. It wouldn't have to be a whole list of numbers. It would just be a single cell of a spreadsheet. Each of the banks could run that through their own models, then send their own answers back. Now, their own answers would also be stored in the single cell of a spreadsheet. That's what a dist is a way of storing, say, a thousand coin tosses into a single cell, or a thousand housing prices into a single cell, or a thousand bank revenues into a single cell. So when those banks send their profit models back to, say, a regulating agency, on coin toss number three, every bank in the whole lot tossed a tail. And suddenly you realize, oh my gosh, if I look at their losses under that scenario, the whole banking system goes down. Um, so we, we've now actually covered the, the light bulb is the interactive simulation. The electricity is this distribution string, right? And the third leg of the stool is something we call the chief probability officer, or CPO for short. And to get this to work and this, the, this notion of a consolidated risk statement, you need some central authority within an organization, within, uh, within a regulatory agency, wherever, that says, this is the set of coin tosses we're going to use. I'm not God. I don't really know how the coins will come out. But we all have to use the same one. Just the way we all have to use the same interest rate when we're calculating net present value. But in this case, it's not a single number. It's a thousand numbers. And so this, the CPO then, if the... The interactive simulation is the light bulb, new light bulb, the distribution string is the electricity, and the chief probability officer is the electric power commissioner. So that now you have probability on the one hand, or electricity on the other hand, that you can trust. And now you can start building an industry around this because, oh, if we're going to use 240 volts, whatever it is, in the UK, 
well, you can't buy a U.S. vacuum cleaner, but you've got enough of a market here that people will build U.K. vacuum cleaners that run on 240. And, right. So it seems as if there's a very immediate need, Sam Savage, for your book, The Floor of Averages, that the sooner we can get the messages out there, and I know you're working with Stephen Schultz at Judge Business School on that, that, that then actually uh, the sooner we can reassess and reevaluate risk management modelling. Yes. Now, let me, let me say this, that um, the book pokes very heavy fun at traditional statistics. Look, um, you know, Catholics can tell Catholic jokes, Jews can tell Jewish jokes. My dad was a statistician, so I feel entitled to tell statistician jokes. And don't get me wrong, the, 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 the theory of probability and statistics is powerful and elegant. Let's not forget that. But so is the steam locomotive, and they were developed at the same time. So uh, at Stanford Engineering, where I teach, we, we no longer teach steam locomotion. But we do still teach steam era statistics. So the book pokes a lot of fun of, at steam era statistics. Um, it is obsolete. It should be forgotten. And in fact, I refer to words like standard deviation and variance and covariance. I refer to those things as red words. And... Um, uh, the, the definition of a red word would be something, for example, that could not be uttered in a singles bar. And in the book, um, they appear in a special type. In fact, uh, they appear in Dracula font. And here at the, at the back of the book, we have a red word glossary. So, um, uh, so, in fact, you can translate these red words into green words are things you could say in a singles bar. Let's see if I can find one that makes sense here. Um, oh, here's one. Okay. The, the red words are central limit theorem. The definition is the reason the shape of a combination of uncertain numbers goes up in the middle. And the closest green word is diversification. So basically, I mean... It's not just a book w which actually pokes funds, which reassesses, which is a seminal work. Actually, it's also a very practical guide giving you a, a route to assess in a new way uh, how risk management modeling should be based in the future. Yes, it is meant to be a really practical book. And um, just as um, I, I, I said that you can't uh, uh, learn to ride a bicycle you know, through the seat of the intellect. Uh, you can't learn this stuff through the seat of the intellect either. You have to learn it through the seat of the pants. And therefore, it has a, a quite a closely coupled website that's full of interactive simulations and things. Um, so you, you can put the book down and learn to ride the bicycle. Okay, well, let's just have the URL for that website. Um, that is flawofaverages.com. Sam Savage, thank you very much indeed for talking to Judge Business School podcast series today. Uh, I've learned an awful lot. Thanks for having me.